Welcome to the LSE for this online event about data-driven responses to COVID-19 opportunities and limitations. My name is Susan Scott. I'm a professor in information systems in the uh, Department of Management at the LSE. I'm very pleased to introduce to you uh, today our panelists, Dr. Alison Powell, an associate professor in the LSE Department of Media and Communications, Dr. Sita Peña Gangaharan, associate professor in the Department of Media and Communications, and uh, Edgar Whitley, Associate Professor in the Information Systems in the LSE Department of Management, and Orla, Dr. Orla Linsky, Associate Professor in the LSE Department of Law. The panel is going to continue the conversation that we began in at our last event in May, reviewing the opportunities and limitations from a societal, legal, and technical perspective, and highlighting the risks of exclusion and discrimination that can arise. Just a few housekeeping uh, matters. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECOVID19. And this online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, uh, subject to no technical difficulties. And as usual, there'll be the opportunity for you to put your questions to our panelists, submit them using the Q&A feature, please at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself as chair, and I'll pose as many as possible to the speakers. Let us know your name, affiliation, and we're particularly keen to hear from our students, alumni, and incoming students. So please let us know. Now I'm delighted to hand over to uh, our first speaker, which is Dr. Alison Powell from the LSE Department of Media and Communications. Alison, over to you. Thank you so much, Susan, and thank you to my colleagues for being such good company uh, on these panels. Uh, I'm also uh, wearing a second hat um, over the next couple of months as I'm on sabbatical from my teaching at LSE. I'm also directing the Just AI Network um, on Data and AI Ethics at the Ada Lovelace Institute. And so I've been digging into a lot of ethical questions over the last couple of months. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about how I think about the relationship between the huge ethical questions that are raised by the COVID-19 responses and the specific um, aspects that are sort of data driven. Um, because it's been a really challenging time to research data and AI ethics. These seem to be both a matter of concern everywhere, and we seem also not to be able to really find our place within this data-driven world, um, in part because the actual structural conditions that generate both COVID-19 and its differential impacts haven't changed much at all, at least not since May. Uh, in London, we're heading into another period of time well, where we will be largely at home, um, encouraged not to mix with other households, encouraged to live life digitally. Um, and we're also encouraged to acquire more data generating technologies, such as the COVID-19 app that lives on my phone, um, such as reporting to uh, track and trace, which we discussed in great detail at our last panel in May. Um, however, at the same time, as we're invited to bring these data generated, generating technologies into our lives as a way of mitigating the crisis, we're also presented with quite a lot of data about the crisis. 
And so we're presented with data about the crisis that reveals its uh, its kind of unknowable nature. Uh, there are infection curves that we're all attending to once again. I wrote about these in the spring and we're back again being presented daily with these kinds of peaks, trying to interpret what a peak means. Uh, we're no longer encouraged to flatten the curve, um, I suspect, because the curve looks a lot more like a straight line upwards uh, than, than the kind of gentle mountainside curve we had in the spring. But we're, the data is also telling us that the impacts are differential and are being felt very differently in different parts of society. We know that this is a disease that impacts people much more strongly if they are in poverty, if they are from uh, minority ethnic backgrounds, largely due to uh, underlying systemic racism. And we know quite a lot more about these questions of systemic racism and injustice than we did in May, in part because of other things that have happened in the interim. Um, for example, the attention that we have been invited to pay as intellectuals and as thinking people to the long-term uh, disempowering of certain voices in society uh, that was raised through Black Lives Matter and other associated social movements. So what I want to just lay out very briefly in the next couple of minutes is this idea that there's a kind of underlying structure that is completely shot through with ethical questions, which are about what is the good in society and how are we meant to uh, kind of act well and on top of that underlying structure that is sort of shot through with really difficult ethical questions about who do we value, what do we value, um, how systemically are we able to understand what's going on in our life, we have a data system that is both material and symbolic. So it is both a data system that produces material that is being stored and used to predict and maintain and structure our everyday lives, and it's also something that is communicating to us all the time. So these graphs that we are invited to interpret uh, are potentially uh, taken by people as sort of one source among many, which produces what people think of as a crisis of misinformation. And that is a something that, uh, that we need to sort of think about these things separately. So if we think about the, the idea of um, this kind of mode of power that's being reinforced through these this material and symbolic uh, dynamic, we can see that in the UK anyway, that mode of power is a kind of tending towards a super privatized tiny state with a set of kind of citizens who are primarily consumers of either data or information about data, or they're producers of data that allow the sort of super tiny privatized state and its actors like Palantir, who's running lots of dashboards that are filtering information to more effectively make decisions. And this is a really difficult um, thing to, to identify and critique because it's so fundamental. It's that underlying set of, it's that underlying sort of social order that produces all of these really tricky ethical questions. And when we look up from that, to the top layer, we start seeing not only, oh, we have a super tiny privatized state that's outsourced quite a lot of the data managed to management to Palantir, but also, oh, we have a media and communication system that's using data about the COVID-19 pandemic in ways that are really easy to generate, to, to kind of put into conversation with I, the idea that everything is misinformation. 
left. For example, this morning, I went to look at a map of London and look at London's infection rates. And I looked at two or three different maps, and I realized that some of the maps had completely different color codings for the infection rates than they did two weeks ago. In suggesting, perhaps, that things really hadn't changed that much since August, when in fact the level of COVID-19 infections across the UK has gone up by a factor of, in some places, up to a thousand, in some places a factor of 500, in some places a factor of two. But this was impossible to determine from the visualization. So this, this introduces this kind of question about the way that data plays as fact, which is something that um, sociologist Norchamaris has talked about in when she alerted us to the risks of computational systems in, the, in terms of how they embed the possibility of deception and, and manipulation into the foundation of the social world. And she wrote about this in terms of Volkswagen's cars being programmed to identify when they were likely to be in testing situations and then to perform differently. But what I'm curious about is whether we now have data systems that are so unstable in terms of their, their sort of symbolic and material um, situation that they are amenable to being perceived as sources of misinformation, which makes it very difficult to challenge that underlying problem with the structure of society and to actually get at those deep ethical questions. So I'm just going to end with some of the questions I think might be the ones we might want to focus on. And they are really about what is good. So is it to respect rights, to be fair, to be transparent, to be good value for money, to build capacity by keeping people healthier? Is the good to think about the systemic long-term uh, safety and health of the entire environment? These are questions we can't even get to because we're trapped in a kind of moment where everything uh, that is factual and data-driven has been put, placed into question both materially and symbolically. I'll pass to my colleagues to look at this in more detail. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alison. And uh, Dr. Sita uh, Gangadharan, Associate Professor in the LSE Department of Media Communications, over to you. Great, thank you so much. And thanks to Alison um, for setting up our conversation. Um, I'd like to also just acknowledge our wonderful um, guests in the quote unquote audience. Um, and I'm looking forward to our conversation as we get to the Q&A. Um, I've been um, thinking about in the, over the last few weeks, um, if there has, if there will ever be a way of thinking about surveillance um, in affirmative or positive terms. And um, in the time that I have, I want to speak about surveillance because I think that um, when we're talking about the data-driven responses to COVID-19, um, we need to center our conversation and understanding about the ways in which surveillance is being normalized at alarming rates um, in this current pandemic. Um, I'd like to also um, draw attention to the fact that, um, as Allison alluded to, we're not really only dealing with um, the health pandemic, we're also dealing with the pandemic of racism um, that has um, really, the debate over which has come, and contention over which has um, come to a head over the last uh, several months. 
So in the time that I have, I want to talk about um, my perspective on the responses or the data-driven responses to the pandemic. Um, in broad terms, thinking about surveillance and wondering about whether, again, there might be a way to sort of um, either invert this process or subvert this process of what seems to be uh, a, a constant con crescendo towards uh, increased surveillance, both by commercial actors and state actors. Um, and so I wanna just really briefly think through um, three types of surveillance that um, I think are in operation in this current uh, crisis. Um, and run through them and then just speak briefly about, um, yeah, thinking about how we um, potentially um, uh, get around these, this increase in surveillance. So there are three kinds of surveillance that I think have now started to really crystallize over the last um, uh, seven months now. And uh, just as context, um, much of what I'm being, what, what I'm talking about really does pertain to both the United States and to a lesser extent, the United Kingdom and Europe. And so again, during the q and I'm really looking forward to hearing some comparative insights as to surveillance in other parts of the world. Um, but there are three different kinds of surveillance that I think are really present in the current uh, context. The one, the first pertains to the idea of marginalizing surveillance and um, the fact that new technologies being deployed uh, during this pandemic or this twin pandemic increase what Torin Monahan calls marginalizing surveillance or what Simone Brown refers to as racialized surveillance. So again, we're not only dealing with um, uh, a crisis due to a pandemic, but a crisis due to systematic forms of oppression and domination over uh, minority populations, particularly black populations, um, as well as uh, populations of color and other uh, minoritized populations. Um, it's been really interesting, uh, I think when we spoke or when we ran this event the, the last time, um, we were attuned to uh, some facets of uh, the pandemic uh, of racism. And I think since then, there's been increased discussion and um, attention to this. And recently, uh, Data for Black Lives, for example, um, produced a series of maps that are looking at racial disparities in the United States with respect to uh, both deaths uh, due to COVID-19, as well as number of cases. And in spite of this awareness uh, um, and the many months that have now trans uh, transpired uh, with respect to the health crisis, we're still seeing um, figures of uh, great disparity. So I'll just point to um, the state of Vermont, for example, which recently was written up in Politico as uh, an exemplar of uh, a state in the United States that responded early and that in instituted um, measures to really clamp down on um, uh, social interactions. Uh, and in fact, the total uh, number of cases of Black people in the state of Vermont is nearly 11%, while the total population of Black people in the state is 
uh, nearly uh, just over 1%, 1 1.3%. So even in the best state, or at least the best rated state, um, we can see that racial disparities are um, very pronounced. Uh, this increases as you get to states like um, Texas or um, Wisconsin, where the rates are even um, at a larger gap of, for example, um, 16 percent, when in fact the population is uh, close to 6 percent. And that's just cases. Um, the death rates, I think, are even more alarming um, in the state of Michigan, again, recently highlighted as a state that has tried to address racial disparities, um, the total percentage of deaths of Black people um, is nearly 38%, whereas the total population is um, close to 14%. So we're still seeing um, grave disparities. And um, I think this is really cause for concern. On top of the the uh, racial disparities in the the health crisis. I think we're still we're seeing um, a sort of maintenance in the types of uh, marginalizing surveillance that happens when people um, from marginalized populations are monitored, punished, or policed for their actions. Right. So. Um, we're seeing this uh, with respect to social welfare programs, be it uh, universal credit or um, wealth, uh, unemployment or um, uh, other social welfare programs in the United States, where, again, um, there's a high degree of monitoring that's going on in a system that is designed uh, to reduce its roles to zero. So we're still seeing people being punished for being poor. Okay, let me move on to the second form of surveillance that I think is kind of um, starting to really uh, manifest itself in the current crisis. And that has to do with the fact that new technologies exacerbate forms of refractive surveillance. And this is a term that Karen Levy, sociologist uh, Karen Levy and Solon Barocas used to explain several years back how data-driven technologies drive a type of consumerism that depends on hyper-surveillance of consumer behavior, which in turn is coupled with hyper-surveillance of workers in the workplace who must perform quickly and constantly drive up uh, the, uh, or meet the needs of the data-driven bespoke needs of consumers. So they were talking about sort of um, uh, hyper-surveillance uh, of, uh, and just-in-time uh, pricing uh, in a sort of retail uh, context, but we can see now in 2020, as we've kind of emerged or divided into a delivered class and a delivery class, this kind of refractive surveillance really kind of taking shape. So what I mean by this in, the, in, in this situation is as you know, uh, middle class and wealthier classes uh, have uh, increased, have developed an increased appetite for art ordering everything online, and most likely not going back to shopping on the high street um, or locally. Right, the the um, demand for uh, low wage warehouse workers has increased. Uh, so Amazon has tried to, uh, has said that they'll uh, um, hire something like 175,000 workers 
um, to increase or to meet this demand. And what has that meant for low-wage workers? Well, it has meant an increased pressure through algorithmic management techniques to monitor their performance, to pack boxes, to get to your house um, in 24 hours or less. Um, This kind of refractive surveillance has been incredibly damaging, um, not only from the perspective of health and safety, um, but I would also argue from the perspective of uh, free speech as workers try and speak out against, uh, you know, things like uh, being punished for being time off task, they are um, fired uh, and Uh, or let go without any chance of being hired again. So we're seeing this really, I think this um, quite a a lot of divisiveness uh, arising in as a result of sort of increased um, need from uh, the delivered class uh, for um, under the context of less social interaction. Okay, let me just really quickly get to the last um, form of uh, surveillance that I think is really taking shape, and that pertains to extractive surveillance. We'll have um, more time to talk about this, hopefully in the Q&A, but what I want to draw out is this concept of extractive surveillance, which Miriam Arak, uh, Helen Pritchard, Seda Garrisis, Femke Snelting have written about recently. Um, They were talking about digital contact tracing apps and the ways in which the relationship between um, big tech and governments has uh, will be on this sort of path dependent uh, trajectory that makes it very difficult for uh, governments to uh, to use the same kinds of democratic safeguards uh, to keep watch over um, this new kind of infrastructure that's making its way into public infrastructure. Um, In addition, they say that um, there's a material danger, which is as we become more dependent on these devices uh, or on these methods of tracking us during this pandemic, there's a material consequence, right? We use more phones, which means that we mine more uh, rare earth minerals, which means that creates a different kind of division between typically North and South um, Southern countries. Um, And we have to think about uh, the impacts of the problem of waste, toxicity and pollution that will accrue during our increased dependence on things like digital contact tracing apps or the devices that power them. Okay, I'll stop there just to say really quickly um, that I hope that in the discussion, we'll have um, some time to really think about um, what are some of the ways around this. So I look forward to your input. Thank you so much, Sita. And now over to Dr. Edgar Whitley, Associate Professor in the Information Systems and Innovation Group in the Department of Management. Edgar, over to you. Thanks. I want to get a little bit parochial, focusing on a UK-specific incident, but hopefully also uh, present it in a way that comes and and resonates with uh, the points that both Sita and Alison have been making about the role of data in our actions and our decisions and the role and the relationship between the state and uh, the private sector companies. Uh, And in particular, looking at a very specific data management, information systems management problem that arose in the UK just at the beginning of uh, October, 
uh, around the production of some of these data facts that so much more of our activities, certainly in the UK, but as a, an example of a broader one, are being driven for deciding what the issues are, how bad the problem is, whether we should become a tier two or a tier three uh, kind of consideration. Just to recap, and for those who are not based in the UK and we're not following this uh, as closely, uh, we have large numbers of commercial, essentially private sector laboratories doing the coronavirus testing on samples that are produced when people report symptoms, manage to get their swabs or drive to a location to get tested and then those individual test results being sent back to public health england for both produce uh, in, in entering into the dashboards so that we can see the curves on the, and the inclines uh, etc but also feeding into further processes around identifying people who've been infected finding their contacts warning those contexts, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the Ada Lovelace Institute uh, report that a number of us were involved, I think all of us were involved in uh, earlier this year, talked about a number of different stages that app technologies can do. First stage was in terms of understanding the disease and in particular understanding how far it has been spread, but also the second role was preventing new infections. So once we know that individuals have been infected, trying to control uh, and limit the extent to which they uh, were interacting with wider society and potentially spreading the virus further. And so what this collection of results from the individual labs was meant to do was both get a sense of where the disease was, but also feed into those broader healthcare processes that will try to limit the further infections. If you have been infected, or if someone that you've interacted with has been infected, you would get the guidance to self-isolate, uh, et cetera, particularly for the asymptomatic. So if you've got symptoms, then hopefully people are kind of realizing that they should book their test. But if you've only interacted with somebody who's got, who's been tested positive, but you are currently asymptomatic, then you, unless you are warned, you will continue to operate in society because you think that you're fine. Uh, beginning of October, the government reported a blip, as it were, in the figures where over 12,000 new infections had to be reported on one day. So you see a nice curve with a huge blip uh, in uh, infections. This was simply the result of a large number of test results not being fed properly into the dashboard and presumably equally uh, into the uh, the processes for contact tracing, et cetera, et cetera. How could this happen? What were the issues? It seems from the press reports that this was a function of using uh, Microsoft Excel, but in particular, a version of Excel that was updated in about 2005, 2006, 2007. So over 10 year old uh, technology. The idea, as, I, as has been described, is that the individual labs would share their data in essentially uh, very basic raw data formats because different labs may have different systems. Those would then be imported into Excel spreadsheets. And then those spreadsheets would then be sent to Public Health England for aggregation and further processing. 
The problem that arose was that the choice of format, the XLS, the early version of the Excel format, was limited to 65,000 rows uh, in the spreadsheet, which if each uh, case had a number of rows, apparently would be about 1,400 cases. So if a lab was reporting fewer than 1,400 cases, all of them would be included in the, uh, would be imported in the spreadsheet. So they were being sent from the labs perfectly fine, but being imported and that would work fine. If you had more than the, that many cases, essentially the software would just delete, ignore all of those rows that wouldn't fit at the bottom of the spreadsheet. And of course, if they're not imported into the spreadsheet, then they don't go into that further process of dashboards, which is useful for planning whether we need to, to in, introduce stricter measures, but importantly, apparently also not being fed to the contact tracers that say, these people have, be, have had positive test results, please now uh, self-isolate, don't uh, spread the disease further, et cetera, et cetera. And so we can have a number of uh, responses, a number of reactions from a straightforward health perspective, health of our community, health of our society, I think there was an awful lot of anger. How on earth could this happen that we have built processes that allow people to continue to spread the disease because they've been in contact with people who we know have reported uh, positive. This also addresses this question of confidence in government. And there are real concerns about the long-term trust in government already hit when the guidance was interpreted, should we say, loosely by government advisors and members of, of, of parliament. But if, you, if the government who we particularly rely on in times of crisis to be able to do things, then these questions of long-term trust uh, become significant. And again, there's a, a kind of anger associated with that. But there's also a way of thinking about this in terms of what actually went on. And drawing on my colleague Leslie Wilcox's work on outsourcing and IT outsourcing, this raises important questions about this relationship between what Alison described as the tiny state and the privatized uh, companies that are working with them. So an initial question was, who just designed this process? Who thought about the requirements? Why did that nobody think that there might be a limit to how many cases any one lab might be returning in any one day. Even if that had been built in as a requirement, that was a very, very strong assumption to make, particularly as everyone was expecting a rise in cases uh, as we come into autumn and come into winter. So was there a proper testing requirement stage going on or did people just not even think about that? Then there's the question of the constraints around the use of technology. Why were they using an old format for the Excel spreadsheets? Was this because Public Health England was running old PCs with old versions of Windows that wouldn't necessarily be able to run the latest versions of Excel spreadsheets? And if that was the case, then surely that could have been fixed fairly early on because somebody should somebody who's been paid lots of money to support the state should have been aware of that particular constraint. Or did nobody think of it? So there's a big question uh, around there. 
And then there's also broader questions around data governance more generally as to how a process could be set up, whether it was within government or in this case between government and private sector support for allowing this kind of activity to be undertaken. And we know that the government has got a data ethics uh, framework. The updated version was issued in September 2020. It's a lot more specific. It's a very nice uh, framework for thinking about data ethics kinds of questions, primarily from a kind of modeling and AI perspective, but many of the uh, considerations actually apply as much for importing test results into a big dashboard and then taking actions uh, arising from it. Couple of um, feature parts from that that are particularly relevant. One, involve diverse expertise. Have someone who thinks maybe we'll have more than 1400 test results from a particular lab. Another point that's there in the framework, review the quality and the limitations of the data. Data scientists know it's very simple to do a quick plot. How many results are we getting from all of our labs? Just do it as a quick graph. And if you get a large number of labs reporting exactly the same number of tests being done, that should jump out to you as saying, hang on a second, it's very unlikely that 15 different labs all had exactly 1,400 cases that they reported because they will have different uh, production lines, et cetera. So that would have looked very, very surprising. Again, the ethics framework talks about having processes in place to ensure and maintain the data integrity. So it's not as though even, uh, so information systems people were all slapping their heads going, how on earth could this have happened? But even if you look just within the data ethics framework of government, there are lots of guidance about how you can take steps to at least reflect on and think about these kinds of things. And that then raises one final set of, of, of questions that we can perhaps open up in the, the, the discussion. We now have these systems in place. There were contracts issued. They became part of the infrastructure for linking the, the labs to the dashboards to track and trace to all of these policy implications. How was that contracting done? On what basis were those decisions made? And how careful were carefully designed were those uh, contracts to allow for uh, offboarding from particular things? So if you suddenly decide that actually importing this as an old style Excel format is not the way forward, let us hope that the contracts allow at the very least the same providers to change the software format and do some testing to make sure that the new format uh, works and that it won't just be an opportunity which is a, an all too common uh, con consideration in many, many outsourcing contracts that says, no, we have signed this long-term contract with you. That counts as a change request. It was not part of the initial contract that we signed. So we will charge you for each one of those additional changes. Now I'm hoping that the companies involved are, are not going to do that, but if necessary, that could be a question of, well, what was the contract that was signed? And with that, I will subtly hand over to uh, Ola.
Thank you. Uh, Orla will now contribute a legal perspective to this important conversation. So Dr. Orla Linsky, Associate Professor of the Department of Law at LSE, over to you. Great. Thank you, Susan, and thanks to colleagues for some really um, thought-provoking interventions so far. Um, so I guess in thinking about these issues from a legal perspective, legal, legal, the legal um, discussion was very much, I think, um, at the forefront at the outset when we were talking about data-driven um, responses or data-informed responses to the virus. But I do think to a large extent, the legal issues have receded over the past few months and we're paying a lot more attention to um, questions around the differential impact of the virus on individuals and the broader societal impact and kind of rightly so. Um, so what I want to, to focus on for my few minutes is um, looking at the uh, contact tracing app discussion. And I've been looking at this primarily from um, a European perspective, but I guess with the benefit of the passage of some time, um, looking back to the debates that were had um, when we last met together in, the, in this forum, to think about what lessons we might learn from those discussions and how they might be relevant to some of the, the points that my colleagues have already made here today. And so really I want to, to talk about three things. So um, the first is a query about whether or not the legal system in fact actually constrained the design of the contact tracing application as it was um, ultimately kind of launched in the UK. The second is about um, the, the potential, but also the limits from a legal perspective of looking or looking at these issues or framing these issues predominantly through the lens of data protection, because that's kind of been our, our go-to legal instrument to um, discuss a lot of these issues and things like the surveillance that CETA has been talking about aren't necessarily very well captured through data protection legislation. And then thirdly, to talk about, um, you know, maybe what we could learn about platform power or the power of digital platforms in light of um, the ultimate contact tracing app that we've ended up with in the UK. So if I start with that um, first query about whether or not uh, data protection law in particular, data protection and privacy concerns, led us to develop um, an app that was, um, or, or the design, where the design of the system was ultimately um, decentralized, meaning that data was held on individuals' devices um, rather than in a centralized server, whether or not that consideration was driven by data protection law. Because the argument here, or the critique has been that data protection and privacy concerns were pushed to the fore um, at the expense of um, uh, useful um, public health gathering or the gathering of um, useful data for public health purposes. So that we put um, fundamental rights um, in, a, in a kind of privileged position relative to public health and the utility of this data for broader societal purposes. And so some have kind of claimed that because data protection and privacy advocates were very much in favor of um, decentralized data storage, where, as I said, data is stored on individuals' devices. It's not stored in a centralized server by government. Um, and the way in which the NHS app had been proposed would have allowed for, for instance, um, the mapping of interactions between individuals in a way that could create a social graph but also um, the, the centralized storage of that data would have enabled potential future uses of the data for other purposes. So repurposing um, and, and a form of function creep. 
And here, um, I guess just in response to that is what I would say is that although um, data protection of privacy advocates expressed a preference for a more decentralized um, system because it didn't have that potential to recreate a social gap, uh, social graph and function creep. This wasn't something I think was necessarily required by data protection law. Rather, what data protection law required was for the developers of an app, if they wished to use a centralized system, to clearly specify what the, the purposes of that centralization were. So why it would be useful to have this data stored in that way. And um, then why that centralization didn't go beyond what was necessary to achieve those purposes. So I think kind of looking um, in the rearview mirror, one of the first things you see was that it wasn't the data protection drove the design of the app. It was that there was a wanton kind of disregard for these basic data protection principles in designing the system and a failure to really articulate um, the how and the why of the data collection to individuals and to, to the broader public in a way um, that was compatible with, um, with uh, the legal framework. Second thing I want to emphasize is just the, the, the limited competence in many ways of the, the data protection regulators here. So as we've heard, um, part of the issue with an app <laughs> might be, um, or as we've considered in other contexts, that, that uh, individuals might be forced, for example, to compel uh, or compelled to produce the app in certain contexts. So we might, for instance, think of employees going into work, being compelled to produce the app, or, um, you know, as we know at the moment um, with the NHS X app, there is a QR code function, um, which certain venues are required to use insofar as um, if you go to a, um, a hospitality venue, for instance, they are required by law to have um, a, a QR code available for individuals to scan using the NHS X app. However, individuals themselves are not required to have the app and to actually scan the QR code. Um, whereas in fact, um, the way in which this is being interpreted by a lot of venues, including I would emphasize local authority venues, so we could think here of village halls, community centers, etc is that unless you scan the QR code, you will not be able to enter into the venue. Well, this is a clear kind of exclusionary um, potential insofar as if you don't have a device that is compatible with the NHS X app, you may not be able to enter because you won't be able to scan that code. And so one question I think raised was whether or not data protection law could capture that type of um, exclusionary effect of the use of a, a data-driven or a data-informed technology like a contact tracing app. And here, what the data protection regulators suggested was that we have principles in data protection law, like a principle of legality or fair processing, which might allow a data protection authority to look to other areas of law, like anti-discrimination law, for instance, to make sure those other areas of law were not violated as a result of the use of a particular technology. So this is in principle possible. However, we've never in Europe where um, there is ostensibly the most um, application or enforcement of the data protection rules, we've never in fact seen an authority apply their competence in this way. And so this leads to a query about whether or not there are impacts 
of certain data-driven or data-informed technologies that we think could be captured by data protection law, but in fact are not. <laughs> um, and I think there are, there are lots of other examples like that of potential gaps in the data protection framework um, where we assume because we have a legal framework that covers personal data processing and, and puts in place principles and safeguards, that this will kind of cover all ills. Another thing I think this emphasized about the role of the regulator here was that in this context, the, 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 the regulator in the UK, for instance, was actively involved from the outset with the developers of the application in um, terms of providing input on the app as, um, and this is a quote, a critical friend. And this has led to some lively discussion in the UK um, about the appropriate role of a regulator in this context, because the legal framework does in fact envisage that the data protection authority can act both as an as, as an advisor to, <laughs> and also as an enforcer of um, those who are subject to the rules. And so what we saw here was what appeared to be a kind of a co-regulatory response <laughs> to the development of the app, even though it was um, lacking in some very basic ways <laughs> in terms of legal compliance. And so I think this raises a big question about the effectiveness of um, the regulatory system, the way in which it's designed to deal with what are likely to become more and more challenges um, that result um, from the use of algorithms by the state. So can our current regulatory setup deal with the challenges of um, the algorithmic state? And then the, the last thing I want to kind of mention is that ultimately um, why the app in the UK kind of as originally conceived faltered was because Google and Apple as manufacturers of um, the, the, the kind of key operating systems that are used globally, decided that um, centralized applications would not um, kind of be compatible with their operating systems. And they designed their operating systems um, in, a, in a kind of collaborative way um, in, in such a way that um, they would only be compatible with uh, decentralized applications. And this caused quite some consternation, for instance, in France, where there had been a centralized application that had been, that had been um, rolled out by the government, but which was in essence ineffective as a result of this design decision taken by Google and Apple. And so this, I think, raises very significant questions about the power of digital platforms, because we can see here that this is a very clear example of um, platform power whereby um, two private operators determine in this instance that the right to privacy would be very effectively um, protected. However, um, that, that, that this could operate in all ways. In this, in this instance, um, that power enabled for very effective protection of privacy, perhaps um, at the expense of other considerations. Whereas in other instances, we might say um, that this might to lead to, this power might lead to, for instance, less protection of freedom of expression or other rights and interests. And so I would suggest that we need to be kind of very wary of this power of digital platforms to act as arbiters of um, fundamental rights. And in ways here, what we're seeing is kind of a challenge to the role of the state in, in, in this circumstance 
and also a kind of a privatization of the state's function of fundamental rights protection. And, you know, in the health context, if we look at the UK, for instance, um, Ada Lovelace Institute, um, which Alison already mentioned, had looked at last year at the, the contract that Amazon entered into with the NHS um, to gain access to um, NHS website data, but also data about um, symptoms, definitions, um, all of the data held by the Secretary of State um, for Health um, was made available to Amazon for use with the Alexa digital home assistant. And um, the Ada Lovelace Institute looked at the available terms of that contract, um, keeping in mind that the terms of the contract were very heavily redacted. And I think this goes to some of the points that um, Edgar raised. Um, and the conclusion reached was that, um, you know, this data was made available to Amazon um, for free, in perpetuity, and um, for worldwide use. Um, Amazon got to um, control the terms of the communication of this deal to the public. And the Ada Lovelace uh, Institute concluded, and I'll, I'll read this, that um, the permissive unclear clauses and the way this deal is worded so, um, so heavily in favour of Amazon illustrates how government agencies are struggling to navigate the stark asymmetries of power between large tech companies and their relatively under-resourced departments. And so... Again, I think, you know, looking at um, the contact tracing example, you see um, that asymmetry of power in play. And actually, from a legal perspective, many of the initiatives that we're seeing to kind of tackle this platform power are looking at it primarily from the perspective of us as um, consumers of digital services, rather than us as citizens or residents of a state that will ultimately be subject to um, this kind of hybrid um, algorithmic uh, power. So I'll kind of wrap up there and uh, look forward to the, the Q&A. Thank you so much, Orla. I'd like to thank all the panellists for their contribution and to now invite questions from the audience. Please do post them uh, in the chat and I will feed them to the uh, to the speakers. We have um, a fascinating couple of questions to, to kick us off, which um, picks up on the theme, uh, the two key terms that have um, been threaded through our, our discussion today of rights and of facts. The first question is from Bryn Firkins, who says, if there was an app that gave people a digital passport that allowed them to go to theatres, pubs, restaurants, or concerts by proving that either A, they have had a vaccine, which is a hypothetical at the moment we know, or B, have tested positive for antibodies. Do you think that the public and business owners would welcome it? Over to our panelists. Edgar. Thanks. Uh, this is something I've been uh, interested in for a while. Um, and it kind of ties in with the third stage of the Ada Lovelace uh, report, which also talks about reopening the economy and, and letting things uh, proceed as close to normal as possible. I think there's an interesting third possibility, equally unlikely at the moment, uh, which is kind of the Project Moonshot uh, idea that the British government was proposing, which is basically mass testing of everybody, 
Um, and those people who had a, a negative result on that day may be able to also go along. So you've had a vaccine, you've had it before and you've got antibodies, which is what immunity typically means. Uh, both of which, well, vaccines aren't here. Immunity, we don't know how long it lasts for. There have already been five cases of people being reinfected. And then the third one is you were tested this morning. The test says that you are okay. So we'll let you at least into relatively low risk uh, kinds of considerations. I think there isn't a lot of interest, a lot of demand for that kind of thing, because it would allow the economy to reopen, it would allow us to engage in various kinds of uh, social activities. But tying in with all of the, the points th from my colleagues, there's a real challenge here about how that gets built, how that gets enforced, how you don't then, or how you would try to constrain the opportunities for either the companies who provide these kinds of facilities. We know that in this particular location, people with this profile have had vaccines, have had immunity or whatever, and, and the kind of data insights that you can get uh, from that, or from the relying parties who would uh, receive that data and say, right, for our demographic, let's say it's students wishing to go to a hospitality location, a bar nearby, we can profile that LSE students are particularly likely to have spent money getting a vaccine. Whereas in the East End of London, in a, a poorer community, we do not see large numbers of people who've got the vaccine because of all of the kinds of issues uh, that were raised uh, earlier. And I think this also ties in a little bit with uh, one, another one of the questions from, from Tony Fish about the whether data gives us truth or facts. I think they absolutely don't. They give us data now, some kinds of data. We have as kind of social acceptance that a medical test done reasonably well counts for something over and above a belief. I believe that I am COVID free. I believe that I'm immune as opposed to I've had a test that uh, confirms that. Um, so it's really about how we see this data and for certain things, we, can, we have a sense that this is broadly acceptable, but that broadly acceptable very quickly moves into areas where we go, hang on a second, there are lots of assumptions that need to be unpacked uh, behind that. And again, then becomes a question of how we think about those limits. The ethics framework is a useful starting point, but I think the kind of reflexivity that academics do, where they worry about the assumptions and the beliefs and the expectations behind all of the kinds of claims that are being made become really important. And I'm already reflecting on the blasé assumptions I make about how all of this data is being used just from the comments that my fellow panelists have been making. Yes, Sita. Um, thanks for this question. I think actually provoked by my co-panelists, um, I am really thinking about um, maybe trying to think of different, both different frames <laughs> by which to understand the crisis that we're in and also um, think about different kinds of solutions that would um, potentially address uh, the myriad or intersecting problems that a number of us have raised. And so I wonder though, you know, I haven't done extensive research on this, 
Um, if instead of digital uh, passports, we might think of uh, less obtrusive uh, techniques, um, for example, uh, dog sniffing, right? Or uh, um, uh, tracing that takes place from analysis of sewers or sewage, um, right? And thinking about the ways in which uh, those kinds of solutions might be uh, engender, uh, you know, different kinds of infrastructures, different kinds of actors, different kinds of potentially ethical questions, different questions about um, the the su sufficiency or um, completeness of their approach. Uh, then, for example, a digital passport um, solution. I definitely worry <laughs> that we've already um, uh, put some, put our eye on innovative solutions to pandemic problems without adequately scrutinizing uh, the, 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 the kinds of technologies and the infrastructures that are associated with them and the procedures or safeguards that are associated. We haven't adequately assessed them. And um, so I would encourage us to think about other kinds of solutions that have been, um, uh, that could be implemented. In terms of just really quickly, the frames uh, that we might want to think of uh, above and beyond the ones that we've been talking about now, um, you know, especially when it comes to thinking about opening up the economy, um, and kind of returning to normal. Um, I think there's been probably not enough emphasis on safety and belonging, uh, sort of overarching frames in our understanding of how we move through this crisis together. So I'd encourage us to think about that as well. Thank you, Sita. Alison, did you want to follow up on that? Uh... Yeah, I wanted to follow up a little bit to just um, think a bit about this question of, of the framing of the citizen as a consumer. And I was also thinking about the idea of the kind of, I think the framing of the citizen as consumer is like a citizen as consumer producer of data, right? Because sometimes the state is the consumer and sometimes the citizen is the consumer, but the dynamic is always the same. The dynamic is always this sort of like idea of production of something that is like a, of a market value for tracking, which of course intensifies the surveillance. So I was also thinking about, if you go back to the questions about how are you gonna judge whether this is something that is good or not? And there was a question about this. Um, which was actually an excellent question about complex adaptive frames. And I wanted to see if I could address it in light of what Sita was saying, uh, because it is one of the, the challenges with thinking through these problems that we're encountering using ethical frames is that the practices are evolving so quickly that the ethical frames and the practices of governance are unable to, to um, kind of account for them. So Orla and Edgar both did these forensic disassemblings of, you know, governance frames that are failing. And the governance frames that are, are failing in part because there is, su there is a, the space for trying to like put in practice those effect, those things that are, that are intended to serve the public interest which have been defined. So I defined a number of them that, you know, we could pick any of them, safety, 
um, safety and belonging is an excellent one. We could put into place a governance framework of safety and belonging, but unless we have the processes that are that that uh, that carry that through, uh, it's a kind of constant um, attempt attempt to catch up. And this isn't because the system is complex and adaptive. This is because there is a maladaptation in the system because it can't contain enough different kinds of things. It can't contain, let's say, using dogs uh, to sniff COVID or testing sewer water or anything that would reposition uh, a kind of citizenry as a collective people, in, you know, living through the same thing together at the same time, rather than the sort of individual data producer. Thanks. Thanks so much, Alison. I, I want to open uh, up a question now by Gurna Davi, an LSE alumni. Thank you so much. We love to engage with our alumni. Question for the panel. A lot of information that can help fight the pandemic can be found in non-structured data, such as video feeds that can accelerate track or trace. Uh, he says, so what approaches are implemented for such use of non-structured data? How can we minimize false positive tracing? And most importantly, I'll, I'll throw this over to Ola after we've addressed the first part, uh, is the right for privacy still with us? So I think the idea of uh, novel data sources is a really important one. It's the kind of area that data scientists have been exploring. What else can we get as a proxy for the kinds of uh, activities that we, that we want to do? I think at the moment, some of the challenges are either that these systems have been designed for very different... So where the systems exist, they've been designed for very, very different contexts and have all of the limitations that we know from those different contexts. And they've been experimented on with air, air, airports. So that's middle-class business travelers in most cases, or they're very poor at face recognition for certain skin tones or whatever. So there are technologies that exist, but have their own constraints. But equally, we, we have a new environment where behaviors have changed significantly. I mean, there was a jokey line that said, all of your app recommend, all of your AI generated recommendations, people who bought X also want to buy Y, were based on pre-pandemic uh, uh, behavior patterns. Nowadays, it might be all the people who bought toilet paper also bought large bags of flour and any yeast that you had available that's not quite the same as people who bought Harry Potter like this kind of a thing. So from an AI technical perspective, you have a real issue about the data sets that you are using to draw the inferences about what kinds of things you would want to do. I also don't quite see what, the, what kind of next steps would be. We have a video that we analyze using AI that shows that lots of people are standing too close together, what do we do? Send police officers down the street and warn them to stand apart, try to identify them and tell them. So I don't quite see that next step. I, but the opportunity of uh, novel data sources is absolutely there, but we need to be careful that we're not gonna throw lots of money on a, a shiny toy that some technologists thinks would be great uh, when we've got these much bigger considerations. 
Peter, would you like to come in on this question of the the unstructured data before I, I move to Ola, or uh, shall we move to the question of privacy? I think we can move to the question of privacy. Um, um, yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. O Ola, is uh, is the right for privacy still with us? Yes, I would say it's alive and kicking, um, <laughs> and 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 being you know and being proliferated all all over the world. So um, that that is one reason why I think it's interesting to think um, what we can and can't do with this legal framework. And I, I see this kind of ties in with um, a question posed by by Tony as well. So I, I didn't in I didn't mean to imply that I see no role for law here. I see a huge role for law here, but I I, I don't think all data related issues our data protection issues. So I think we can't channel all kind of societal ills or benefits as a result of personal data processing through the lens or through the funnel of, of data protection law. Um, th this being said, um, it does kind of consolidate some of the core principles that we could derive from the right to privacy. And actually, as, as a legal framework, it's often characterized as being incredibly prescriptive. And I, I, I see that. I have the GDPR beside me here. It's 90 pages long. But if you look at what went wrong with the NHSX app, it was that it didn't comply with the core principles that are set out in Article 5, which have been around in legal instruments since the 1970s, and which are principles, which are flexible and adaptable, and say that you can use data for different purposes, but, you know, be clear about what those purposes are and then don't then reuse data for incompatible purposes, for instance. So a lot of the, a lot of privacy law is capable of kind of flexing to respond to kind of broader societal interests, but it does so in a way that ensures that um, there is accountability because it is kind of in accordance with the law and respects some minimum safeguards. Thank you. Sita, uh, would you like to come in here? Yeah, just a really quick thought, because I see our clock is running low. Um, and that is, um, you know, the last time we had this discussion, I think, uh, to a certain extent, we were thinking perhaps outside of the UK European context uh, a little bit more. And I think there's still a lot of room to learn from other parts of the world <laughs> where uh, the focus hasn't been so centrally on digital contact tracing apps, or perhaps there isn't a computational infrastructure to support that kind of um, analysis or use of data. Same would apply for unstructured data, et cetera. And I think we have uh, underexplored that. Uh, and I, I really hope to um, both learn from some of our, our um, attendees, but also uh, from what's happening elsewhere. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. I'm, I'm now going to turn to each of the panelists and ask them, we had an earlier event in May, and that's uh, available online if people would like to go back and uh, review it. We've had this event today. What questions for the, you know, are important as we take this conversation forward? And I'm going to um, start with you, Alison, if I may. Thank you, Susan. Thank you to all of my colleagues. It's, all, it's really a pleasure to have this conversation with you, especially to have it kind of continuously over time. Um, I think since, you know, uh, in, the, in, the, in the kind of May event, I was deep in having done quite a lot of COVID rapid response work. And I was really optimistic that we could, as experts and as citizens, sort of share our insights and to and sort of shape the technical systems that were going to help us both govern and respond to this crisis. 
And I think in the intervening time, I've become increasingly concerned with the legitimacy of the processes of governance. I'm actually less concerned about the development of the technical structures. The technical structures are being developed, but it appears to be the systems of governance, oversight, and account accountability and trust that are being worn away in a number of different ways, either through the kind of um, leaving out, leave it, make, creating a space for, for data to be taken as misinformation, uh, for muddling up the connections between data, truth, and fact, or through these kinds of um, mismanagement and misinterpretation adventures um, that Edgar and Orla have told us about. Um, there is no reason why an antique version of um, Microsoft Excel should be used to import um, comma-separated values uh, from different laboratories. There are many different kinds of database systems that would not have that problem. Um, so that is clearly not a technical problem, that is clearly a governance problem. Um, and the intensification of surveillance that CETA identified as well um, suggests that we have bigger governance challenges because our governance challenges are intersecting with questions of massive inequality um, and dynamics of class, race and difference that are becoming hardened through the kind of poor, the sort of inconsistent, let's say, response to this pandemic. And those are the things I'll be paying attention to for the next six months. Thank you so much. Because that uh, connected with the, the themes that you've raised, Sita, I'm going to, to turn to you next. What are the kind of questions for the conversation going forward? Um, I'm really struck by uh, what um, Edgar mentioned earlier in terms of thinking about how do we actually devise uh, spaces, deliberative spaces, where a wider set of stake stakeholders um, could be involved. And I don't tend to think about um, this kind of more inclusive process in terms of stakeholders, because I think that term can be really limiting. Um, but even for this panel, for example, uh, I, I would love to actually have uh, a debate with somebody from Google or Apple. I would love to have a debate from, with somebody uh, from inside government. I would love to have, you know, someone who's actually living in a precarious situation. Uh, you know, somebody that's unhoused, for example, in uh, on Skid Row in Los Angeles, which is a community that I've worked with um, before, right? Just thinking about the, the ways in which our conversations about governance have been become so narrow and um, so inflexible seems part of the problem and I think that really this is the this is the hard work moving forward and these are the questions this question of injustice in the actual governance structure um, I think are going to become even more pronounced as we um, as we move forward in the next years. Thank you so much. The, the issue of governance uh, prompts me to turn to you, uh, Orla, uh, for, for questions that you believe will be form part of our conversation going forward or, or should form part of our conversation going forward. So I think I kind of already hinted to what I what I'll be looking at for the for the next few months at the end of my talk. But um, I think a lot of the, the recognition at the moment around issues of platform power have focused on um, 
the way in which we are, uh, we might tackle that from a kind of a, a private law perspective, so to speak, or in, or in our um, roles as individuals in a certain capacity. So if I look to the next few months, um, in, in the UK this week, we've had um, a, a, somebody from the Competition and Markets Authority state that digital acquisitions like Google's acquisition of Fitbit, which I think is going to be cleared imminently by the European Commission, because we're looking only at that acquisition as a result of its impact on targeted advertising, rather than kind of um, <laughs> the, the broader implications that it might have for, um, you know, for various rights and interests. Um, the CMA is kind of saying, suggesting now, well, we'll have a kind of a parallel assessment of that type of um, transaction to take into account broader interests. So we, we are seeing kind of some movement forward in terms of addressing platform power in some contexts, but a lot of the energy seems to be behind, um, as I said, us as, us as consumers or users of digital services, rather than us as residents of a state engaging with the state power. And, and so I I'm, I'm, think I'll start to consider more, uh, more seriously how um, the kind of public-private cooperations that we're seeing are um, changing our relationship with the state and whether or not we have appropriate accountability mechanisms in place and whether or not, you know, the general governance structure is kind of fit for purpose given that changed role. Thank you so much. And uh, Edgar Whitley, finally over to you. Questions. Yeah, I'm kind of, I think we're all kind of somehow have ended up on this kind of governance uh, question. I think it's really interesting to kind of reflect on what's going on uh, right now. So you've got civil servants, in the UK particularly, but around the world who are there to do the best for the country according to their particular expertise, but are also being driven by uh, political decisions that they then uh, have to uh, implement. So a lot of the changes are going through under statutory instruments rather than full parliamentary scrutiny. So I'm sounding like a, a, a right-wing conservative MP about the right to discuss. And I think some of this is just the urgency of the situation. You can't have a long debate around how you might do something, even if the issues, whether it's funding for people who are being furloughed because they're in a tier three city or whatever it might be, or the kinds of exclusions, precarious lifestyles, et cetera, that CETA we're talking about. I think there's an important role for academics because we sort of have that space to think in a way that a civil servant who's got to improve testing and tracing or deliver this or deliver that doesn't necessarily have. So we can provide a very useful complement to, to that. And I think in terms of a broader uh, question, I think there's a, this uh, a, a risk that we think of this as all being inevitable, that it's just changed and we, we, have, we have no agency, we have no option to, to change it. So I'm particularly interested in how we build up resilience, we build up recovery, how we either avoid making similar kinds of decisions next time round, whether it's this pandemic or something else, and how we potentially start unpicking some of the urgent, quickly done, but not necessarily fully thought through decisions, and what that potentially means in terms of the relationship between the state and the private sector or whatever it might be. So I think that idea of resilience and recovery, I, with the academic space to think about the causes of things and think about that, uh, those questions critically from all of the different kinds of perspectives gives us a useful uh, angle 
and a useful role to continue to play in society. Thank you very much. Well, I'd, I'd like to thank all of our panellists for their comments today. It's uh, been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to engage with you. I hope that uh, you've enjoyed uh, listening. Thank you so much uh, for taking part, both speakers and audience. We're grateful you could find the time in your busy schedule to be with us today. And we look forward to welcoming you to another event in the near future. Thank you, everybody.